Hello and welcome to The World in 30 Minutes, the podcast on the events, policies and ideas that will shape the world from the European Council on Foreign Relations. My name is Mark Leonard. I'm director of ECFR and we are back now for one of our special series on 1989, what happened then and what it means for the future. And I'm particularly happy to be talking today to Sylvie Kaufmann, who is the editorial director of Le Monde and a columnist there, as well as for the New York Times. And she has gone back to 1989 in a series of quite extraordinary articles for Le Monde, where she looks uh, in depth at some of the big shifts that have taken place over the last three decades. And I'm hoping that we can go into some of these big shifts that resulted from 1989 from before. And maybe, Sylvie, we can start by you telling us where you were in 1989 before we go into these big turning points. In 1989, I was Central Europe correspondent for Le Monde. So I was really there on the ground in Poland, spent a lot of time in Poland at that in 1989 and in Hungary and in the Czech Republic, in Czechoslovakia, what was then Czechoslovakia, of course. And I I have a particularly vivid memory of June 4, 1989, which was the day of a semi-free election in Poland, which resulted from the roundtable negotiations uh, between Solidarność and the Communist Party. And that event on June 4 really, I think, uh, started the whole big shift and the collapse of the communist bloc. Obviously, everybody remembers the fall of the Berlin Wall on November 9, but I think June 4 in Poland was crucial. And ironically, it was the same day as the massacre in Tiananmen Square in China. So that was, I think, a very important day in 1989 in many respects. So looking back now on, on the last three decades and having gone through all of these interviews wow. that you've done for, for Le Monde, how important a turning point do you think 1989 was in history? And what do you think the different dimensions of it were? I think it's it's not only 1989. I think we have to take the sequence of events between 1989 and 1991, December 1991, which is the, the end of the Soviet Union. And those roughly two years were a major turning point for the world. But particularly for Europe. And there was such an acceleration of events, you know, well, everything happened so quickly and so surprisingly that I think at the time the impact of the events was not felt, the extent of the changes that they would bring, the consequences on all aspects of our political, economical and diplomatic life, I think couldn't really be analyzed at the, in real time because it was just so extraordinary. And that's why I found quite fascinating to go back, not only to those events 30 years later, but also to some other events, some consequences which were felt, which happened 10 years later or 20 years later, because you can see over those three decades, how important, in fact, that shift of, I mean, the, the, that, that period of 1989, 1991 was for Europe, particularly, and for the transatlantic relations and for many aspects of our life. And I think there was also, we realize now that there was also no time to think of another model. We had this Western model, which was basically the only one we knew since the so-called socialist model had collapsed. And this was the, this Western model of free market and democracy basically was the one that Eastern Europe 
uh, was aspiring to to apply to their own countries. And we thought that was the right model also to give them, if I may say so. And at the time, political leaders didn't took the time to or, or even think to adjust our model to a different environment or to countries which had, had gone through uh, different historical experiences whose uh, whose societies were different from ours because of those uh, several decades of communism and of closed societies. So this is something I think we also only took the measure of this aspect of 1989-1991 only over the past few years. So in your articles you look at the questions of who lost Russia, at China's revenge, but how 1989 to 91 carried the, the the first signs of the division of the West, as well as what happened to European social democracy. We covered quite a lot of these themes in some of the earlier podcasts, talking to Fyodor Lukyanov about Russia and mm-hmm. Jeffrey mm-hmm. Wasserstrom about about China's revenge. And we had a really interesting discussion with Jeremy Shapiro about, about America's 1989. But we didn't dwell so much on this idea about the division of the West. Maybe you can sort of explain a bit more why you think 1989 was the beginning of the end of the West. Right. Again, looking back now, because we have this idea that the division of the West, I mean, the transatlantic divide started, well, there was this point, this conflict of the Iraqi war when part of Europe didn't follow the United States in the invasion of Iraq. We have the idea that there was those golden years under Clinton. And then, so with, with Bush, it was very difficult. And then with Obama, it was okay again, but now we realized under Obama already we were drifting apart. And of course, Trump arrived and then it was complete breakup. So now, if you look at it now and you talk to actors of the 90s, you realize that in fact, <laughs> this uh, drifting apart was quite inevitable and was a consequence already of 1989. Because why did the West exist? After all, the Western bloc existed during the Cold War because there was an Eastern bloc, Soviet bloc. And so very early on, the Stalinian threat united us, made this transatlantic relationship so strong. And so we had NATO and everything. But, you know, you have some people like Hubert Védrine, the François Mitterrand's former foreign minister, who argue that, in fact, the transatlantic relation was not so easy or automatic before the Cold War, that during the two world wars, he reminds us that the United States only intervened well after the conflict started. So once the Warsaw Pact and the Soviet Union disappeared, you know, what kept the West together? So at the beginning, victory kept us together. But, you know, this sense that our model and our ideology had had won the Cold War. But in fact, we didn't have that common threat anymore to hold us together. So in the first few years after... 1989 and and the collapse of the Soviet Union, the Western allies together made a remarkable job of negotiating with Russia how to shelter nuclear weapons, which were stored in Ukraine and Kazakhstan. We have forgotten 
how dangerous the world was at that time. And uh, so that was really collective leadership at its best, if you want. But quite soon, different visions of, of the future emerged among uh, Western allies. For instance, me, François Mitterrand thought that NATO would fade away quite quickly for lack of raison d'être. So, you know, the French started again to <laughs> started again their old dream of a European defense, but they found quickly also that, in fact, the America was naturally inclined to strengthen its domination. And that was also the German view to support this. Helmut Kohl was very much in favor of this Atlantic um, strengthening. So Mitterrand, in fact, underestimated the American determination to give a new role to NATO. And so you, you could see, in fact, already in the 90s, those differences emerging between um, some Europeans and America. So it was the first time when NATO was declared brain dead in 1989. <laughs> in a way. <laughs> <laughs> but things were said more, were told more diplomatically at the time, yes. <laughs> it was more subtle and nuanced, yes. But then came 9-11, and I think... Then it was already less diplomatic. That's that's also revisiting 9-11 now is also quite interesting because we have this idea that 9-11 was this extraordinary moment of, of Western solidarity and unanimity, which it was immediately after it happened. Your newspaper, in fact, was the centerpiece of that when you declared Nous sommes tous Américains. Right, yeah, that headline, Nous sommes tous Américains, which surprised many people because Le Monde was always of easily call over the United States. So that was, I remember, I mean, in our newsroom, it was very heartfelt solidarity for America. And that, that was our editor at that time, Jean-Marie Colombani, who wrote this piece with the headline, We Are All Americans. And it was, we were all in unanimity about this. But in fact, now when you talk to people who advised Jacques Chirac at that time and also the French ambassador in uh, Washington, uh, François Bujon de l'Etang, who is now retired but who has very vivid memories of that period, of course, you realize that the French, for instance, quite quickly sensed, and that's probably Jacques Chirac's instinct particularly and his experience, he realized that the Bush administration was already thinking about Iraq and about Saddam Hussein because Jacques Chirac went uh, to visit Bush just one week after September 11. It was a bilateral visit which was planned well before and the French asked the Americans, are you sure you really want us to come now because it's, uh, you know, it's a difficult time for you. And Condi Rice and Bush said, no, no, please come. We need friends in time like this. So in September, it was, we still had this really strong solidarity. You know, it was at that time, the only time that the Article 5 of the Transatlantic Charter was invoked, it was by the allies to help to support uh, the United States after 9-11. So, but very quite soon, in fact, Chirac went back in December to Washington and he went to see Bush in the White House. And there he realized they had a quite difficult conversation, in fact, when Chirac understood that the Bush administration was going to go into Iraq. Well, that was the plan already. And he tried to warn them. He said, be careful. You know, these are very difficult, very fragile balances in the Middle East. 
And if you start to disrupt this, you, you don't know what the consequences might be. But Bush, Condi Rice and the whole administration were completely deaf to this kind of, of warnings or advice. And Chirac went back and then apparently uh, uh, the, the French ambassador remembers Condi Rice saying, what we want to do is to give a big kick in the chessboard over there in the Middle East and we'll see how the pieces will <laughs> fall back. <laughs> and so obviously we've seen how the pieces fell back and uh, that was you know there was this very big division within Europe and between parts of Europe and America during the Iraqi war the French France and and Germany went one way and um, uh, several other countries went the other way supporting particularly the UK and the new democracies of Central Europe so that's another consequence of 1989 in fact that's this division of Europe over Iraq. And in fact, Europe was not so much divided over Iraq. It was divided over the United States. And who would trust the United States so much that it would support this uh, adventure in Iraq or who would trust them enough? So you think this division between new and old Europe is something which was created by 1989? I think so, because those new... The Central European democracies were, and we can still see it actually uh, at the moment, you know, we're so grateful to America to have helped to liberate them in 1989 that they, many of them thought that they had to follow. Not only that it was their duty, but it was their instinct to follow America. And it's quite interesting that the current uh, Czech culture minister, who is also a former foreign minister, Lugomir Zauralek, very recently gave an interview, last month actually, where he says, we made a terrible mistake in 2003. We followed the United States into Iraq. That was a mistake. Uh, France and Germany were right, because in doing this, we defended unilateralism when we should have supported multilateralism. And in such a way, we prepared the ground to Trump. I think that's, that's a quite interesting analysis to make from a Central European politician so many years later, it's about 15, 16 years later. So one consequence is this, is this division between East and West, which is insuperable as a result of the, the role of the US as a kind of divider. Uh-huh. The other big consequence which you look at in one of your articles is is the collapse of European social democracy. You think that that also started in 1989? Yes. So that's something also which we didn't see at the time or we didn't suspect at the time. You're in the euphoria of 1989. What most Western politicians saw was that democracy and free market had won and that communism was defeated. And communism was, in many respects, also the enemy of social democracy. So everybody <laughs> was was happy about this result. The social democrats didn't realize that this victory, in fact, also contained the germs or the ferments of, of their own decline. So one thing, for instance, that surprised some Western European social democrats, like, for instance, former President François Hollande, who told me he was then one of the leaders of the French Socialist Party, And he said, we were very surprised that the new democratic leaders of Central Europe, people like Václav Havel or Bronisław Geremek in Poland, we thought they would be naturally attracted to social democracy, that they would join or would set up social democratic parties. But in fact, (laughs) 
they were not interested at all. They were more center-right or Christian Democrats. Western social Democrats were quite naive in thinking that the left could still, even the center-left, could still be attractive to politicians who had lived for 40 or 50 years under the communist rule and in a one-party system. So, you know, that was one first disillusion, if I may say, of Western European uh, social democrats. And then what happened is that the social democratic parties, in many respects, defined themselves in opposition to the far left or to the communist parties. Uh, For instance, in France, that was quite the case. And once those this communist adversary was gone. They lost an ideological adversary on the left. And so they, they lost some of the, their political parameters and they didn't realize that they, that they were taken into the 90s where, because the 90s were the golden age for social democracy in Europe. You know, social democracy ruled Europe. 1997, 13 out of 15 of the EU member states had social democratic. You see, so so that's also something which is quite incredible, how this political trend, I mean, this political, very powerful political force, which was social democratic parties all over Europe, were the big hopes of that time. And when you look at where they are now, most of them, you know, they have either collapsed, like in France or in uh, in the Netherlands, for instance, or they are completely lost in some ideological, you know, <laughs> far away left, like like the Labour Party, or or they are involved in very strange coalitions with, you know, parties that they shouldn't be in bed with, basically, or their electorate has been halved, like in Germany with the SPD. So I think we can really talk about a collapse of social democracy nowadays, which is really one of the, I think, one of the big political phenomenons of of the past three decades. There's no question that social democracy Mm -hmm. is in a state of abject crisis almost everywhere. But be interesting to to dig a bit deeper about how Mm -hmm. 1989 ends up causing that. So one thing is is the the loss of ideological definition. Both on the other side, there was a a kind of hope in many of these, particularly during those glorious years of the 1990s, there was a hope that by aligning themselves with globalization and with free markets Mm -hmm. and Mm-hmm. Instead of trying to overthrow capitalism, the idea, mm-hmm. I think, was to, to try and make globalization more palatable by um, preparing people yeah. so that they could be mm-hmm. um, more flexible in, a, in this kind of new world. Because you spoke to a lot of a lot of leaders from, of different parties who were both active in the 80s and who've lived through these turbulent periods. Maybe you can just talk a bit more about the, mm-hmm. the road from 89 and how much of it was about the sort of decisions made after that. But... So we've talked about the political, ideological aspect, but obviously there's a very, very strong element to take into account in this uh, decline, which is globalization and, and neoliberalism. And you have, you know, I think Tony Blair and Peter Mandelson 
are Tony Blair has has uh, some difficulty in making you know in having some uh, retrospective or, or, or self criticism at his experience, but I think Peter Mandelson you know has really given it a lot of thought about why about this decline, and he agrees that confronted with this neoliberalist trend, the labor movement or the social democrats in Europe didn't make enough of a political effort to redefine themselves and to try to find a new way of making globalization more equal or more adjusted to their political ideas. There's the Swedish uh, former prime minister, Ingvar Karlsson, who I think has a very useful uh, self-critical look at the Swedish experience. And he says, we we so strongly believed in our model, in the Nordic model, because it had been so successful that we didn't realize really how far neoliberalism was taking us. And we, we underestimated the political force of neoliberalism. That was a grave mistake, he says. We didn't realize fast enough how the inequalities were being deepened. And also Joseph Borrell, who who was a minister of the Spanish socialist government in the late 80s and 90s, and who is now the high representative for external policy. Of the, he told me about a memory he had of a European when he was finance minister or economy minister of Spain. And in Brussels, there was this ministerial meetings where they discussed liberalization of capital for the free movement of capital. And France and Spain put a condition to this. They said, yes, we, we will go forward with this if we keep the possibility of fiscal harmonization and if we can still tax the capital. Most of the other countries, particularly Germany, were against. In the end, France and Spain gave in and Joseph Borrell sees this as a turning point because he said we gave up the possibility of taxing capital. And this is one of the basis of social democracy. It's your ability of taxing the capital. So you see, you had the impression, you have the impression now, in fact, that these social democratic governments were carried away by the force of this globalization movement and liberalist movement, and they couldn't really resist it because it was so powerful at that time. Okay, so those are some quite profound changes over the last 30 years, which see big shifts which we're living through at the moment. The divisions in the West, the collapse of social democracy, the rise of inequality as a kind of mobilising issue within Europe. If we look at the next 30 years, because, you know, the famous quote attributed to Joe Enlai about the, the French Revolution, what, what do you think about the French Revolution? He says it's too early to tell. Imagine that it's too early to tell what the consequences of 89 are now. What do you think they'll look like when we're celebrating the 60th anniversary of 1989? So that would be 2049, right? Well, I won't be around, of course, but I think, you know, 2049, it will be all about China because it will be the centenary of the People's Republic of China. And of course, Xi Jinping also won't will not be around but i thought he was going to be president for life so he might very well still be around <laughs> for life but that doesn't mean forever unless the chinese find you know are so uh, are definitely the masters of artificial intelligence and they also find out the way to exactly. artificial life for their great <laughs> leaders 
I would like to think that Europe by then has consolidated and has um, finally understood that it is a power in itself if it is united and that it can, you know, not only defend itself, but also have a positive influence on the rest of the world. But I think you, we will be very much in 30 years talking about China and less about Central Europe and the effect of 1989. So it would be China's 1989 that ends up being the more right. significant <laughs> So maybe just to finish the podcast, we always end our podcast with the bookshelf segment. Obviously, any self-respecting person should have your four articles on their bookshelves and we'll put links up to them on the website. But are there any books or articles or films that you think are really worth going back to if people want to understand the, the kind of long tale of 1989 for Europe? There's a book which I have been reading because it came out just as I was uh, writing this and, and working on this. It's a book by Andrei Kozyriev. Kozyriev was the foreign minister of Boris Yeltsin. The book is called The Firebird, The Elusive Fate of Russian Democracy. It has a foreword by Michael McFall, very good scholar, but also American ambassador in Moscow. And it's a memoir, but it's a fascinating account of those uh, years of, of the 1990s when we thought that Russia could still become a democracy or could join the, you know, the community of, of democratic countries. And, and Kozyriev was definitely, and still is, he lives in the United States now, actually. He lives in Miami. He's very much a Democrat himself. And he was, uh, you know, he, you can see that he sincerely thought and fought for his country to become a normal democracy. But he also very, the details with which he, re he recounts how Yeltsin eventually had to give in or had to was too weak. Though he was, he had this very powerful vision, but he was too weak as a person. In fact, you know, he was overpowered by the conservative, the nationalist, and the oligarchs. That's really a, a fascinating book to read now. Wonderful. So we will put links up to CV's articles and to the Kozarev book on our website, which is www.ecfr.eu/podcasts. If you've enjoyed listening to us. It is your duty to let everybody else know about it so they can listen to it as well, either by writing about it on your social media page or ours, or even better, heading to the platform that you use to download this podcast and giving us a review. But for now, from Sylvie Kaufman and myself, Mark Leonard, it's goodbye. The research of this podcast was Hannah Zulfie Bowman, and our producer is Marlene Riedel. Thanks a lot, Sylvie. That was wonderful. Mm -hmm.